Today's episode is brought to you by Page 48. In this respect, alcohol was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. Sometimes this was a tedious process. So what's the word? Tedious beating. (laughs) Where'd you hear that? I I heard heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collective voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey there, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Hi, Sam. What's happening, Don? I was thinking about a meeting I was at this past week, and we were talking about anonymity. And that's a hard word to say. Yeah. It took me a while to say it. And then anonymity. Anonymity is like, you know, when I first got sober, I was didn't want anybody to know I was in AA whatsoever. Oh, no, they'll know I'm an alcoholic as as if I wasn't a drinker. Yeah, they already knew. (laughs) (laughs) No, I went to a coffee shop and I had my start coin and my change. When I went to get change, I pulled it out. And I was like, oh, no, like chills went all over me. And I was like trying to get the change out without letting her see that, you know, that that there was an (laughs) AA coin in there. And and I put it back in my pocket and, and she said, is that an AA token? I said, uh, yes, it is. And she said, oh, well, my father's in AA, and that's just been the greatest thing for him. So I felt better. I dodged it. That <laughs> but what I thought about was like, now that I've been sober for a while, it's not the same thing. And I will, in certain situations, let people know that I don't drink anymore. And particularly like in medical situations. I got to let my doctor know what's going on. It, it's generally a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And I was having this procedure. I was having an endoscopy. 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 Let's make it sound weird. <laughs> well, it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there, you know, they're going to take a picture of my heart through my throat. So they're going to put a camera down my throat. And for that, they put me to sleep. Well, first in the room waiting to have the procedure done, the nurses were in there and talking. Everybody's really friendly. And she said, now you're going to have to drink this. What I want you to do, this tastes terrible. People hate it, but I need you to gargle this and then swallow the whole thing down. She said, believe me, you want to be numb. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm game. So she gave it to me. I gargled it and swallowed it. And she looked at me and said, you hardly made a face at all. And I was going, I have drank much worse tasting stuff than that. I mean, (laughs) it didn't taste anywhere near as bad as MD 2020, the wine that I used to drink. There was one that I used to drink in Florida called Bacco Blackjack 21. Nasty stuff that tasted like jet fuel. She laughed. Why is that? And I was like, well, I've I've been sober for 20 plus years. She looked at me and said, oh, that must be hard. And I was like, well, no, it's not hard. And said, oh, here's the doctor. And I was asleep. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't get to explain to her that, no, the beauty of being sober and 
Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not hard. It's not hard for me to stay sober. It's beautiful. Have you had any odd experiences with sharing anonymity? Ooh, well, you know, you're giving me an interesting question because I think that you're talking about two separate things, and that is privacy and anonymity. Um, And so, yeah, I've had situations where I've broken my anonymity with a client, and I will mention in an appropriate situation that I'm I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where I can be of service. we, We were having a conversation about someone who was having some problems with drinking. But I've also broken my privacy, if you will, yeah. in many situations where I will, I have no problem whatsoever telling someone that I'm sober or that I don't drink. That's just me saying I don't drink. It's not an anonymity break. Yeah, I don't drink. But I just had to laugh when you were talking about the endoscopy because I just had a colonoscopy. You know, I've got to drink, what is it, 16 ounce of nasty liquid. And I'm just like, go, 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 go. And it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's like, that stuff doesn't taste that bad. It's not that big a deal. And then I'm on the table and the anesthesiologist is talking. You know, he's like, now you're going to start to feel a little bit of a burn in your arm. And, and I'm like, my lips are numb. And that's the last thing I remember saying to him. (laughs) So, I mean, it was like, but I really did enjoy that moment, however fleeting it was. But I share my sobriety freely today. That is not how I was early on. Early on, just like you were describing, I was afraid that someone was going to know that I was trying to do something about my alcoholism. Oh, that means he can't handle his alcohol. He's got a problem. Whereas if I was just a drunk, a falling down, passing out drunk, well, you know, that's okay because I'm a partier. The thinking wasn't right then. As I got comfortable in my sobriety, I also got comfortable in disclosing that I don't drink. And then I got comfortable also in disclosing that I used to have a drinking problem. That's a while ago. Yeah, that's a while ago. Well, it changes the longer that you're sober. Because when I first got sober, my bad behavior, drinking, just happened a month ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, after I've been sober for a few years and I've worked the steps, I'm now living in a way that I'm not that person. I'm not going to be that person anymore. I've looked at my character defects, I've made amends, and I'm living one day at a time to not live that way anymore. And so it becomes distant. It's not the same thing once you're sober for a while as or as early on. But there's so there's appropriate times to do it though, and times that it's not appropriate. You have to judge that individually each time. Yeah. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. I know when it's appropriate today. Yeah. Well, what's happening today? Well, what's happening today is uh, we're going to have a conversation with Danny. All right. Also, we will be having a hashtag heard at the meeting. No, that's pound sign. Oh, wait. (laughs) That's my line. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, let's, let's meet Danny. Sounds good. Grapevine does not accept donations, but you can offer your support by making a purchase at store.aagrapevine.org or by the Carry the Message gift certificates to sponsor Grapevine subscriptions for alcoholics in need. That's store.aagrapevine.org. Order a copy of the new book, 
fun in sobriety and join us August 22nd for a group discussion. Participate by calling 212-870-3418 with your reflections on fun and sobriety, and we may play it on the show. That's 212-870-3418. Hi, my name is Danny F., and I'm calling in from Portland, Oregon. Hey, Danny, so glad for you to join us. Hi, Danny. When did you get sober? I got sober January 2nd of 2018. Have you struggled at times to let people know that you're no longer drinking? Was that hard for you at first? It absolutely wasn't, but I grew up around the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. My father has 22 years sober this year, and I have comfort with letting people know that my life is way better today. That's a great way of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) So letting people know that I don't drink is a preemptive way of letting them know what I do want in my life and what Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't want to spend time with people where drinking centric social activities is the focus. Mm-hmm. And I found that for my mental health care providers, my doctors, my colleagues at work, letting them know that I'm sober lets them know that I'm not going to be engaging in those things before they even need to ask me about it. it makes my life simpler in the long run. Have you, either of you ever encountered situations where someone won't take no for an answer when they're offering you a drink? Absolutely. Being a femme in the world means that when people want to buy me a drink, it's usually their way of wanting to buy my time. And so I've found some creative ways of letting them know that my time doesn't require that. There's also some old quips that I heard in the room. Um, I'm allergic to alcohol. It makes me break out in handcuffs. The one I use is just that, no, if, if I get started, there's just no end to it. So Danny, what happened to you when you decided to get sober? You decided to go to AA. It sounds like you knew about AA from your dad. Oh, I did. So this is not my first round in AA. I didn't want to come to AA because I had this concept of I've read the book. I've heard the traditions. I've heard the quips. And so my first round through AA was begrudgingly sitting in meetings and listening to all the differences. But what made me come to AA was that when I went back out on my relapse, I no longer could fool myself into thinking that I knew better because with all of that knowledge, here I was doing something that I didn't want to do day in and day out. And so this time coming into the rooms, I didn't have anything left to lose. And so I decided to give it all up and just listen and just listening got me to where I am today. But it took me a couple of times to get here and be able to hear the message the way that I needed to. How long were you in AA? and identifying yourself out. I was sober for about three and a half years. And I do use the word sober because I was working the steps. I was going to meetings weekly. And when I relapsed, I had done all of the classic things that I've heard everybody talk about doing. I had stopped going to meetings. I had stopped getting something out of it. But to be honest with you, the biggest problem that I faced was that I was stuck on that fourth step for almost three years, which was painful. Oh, I bet. For a lot of folks, doing their fourth step is something that they put off, but I've heard it only takes six hours. It takes six hours and two weeks, six hours and two months, maybe six hours and (laughs) a year. For me, I was having a difficult time separating out the trauma that I was trying to process by writing down all of these things that had happened to me and working with a sponsor who was not a therapist. For this alcoholic, I needed to be in therapy while doing my fourth step just to be able to do it honestly without hurting myself. And that was one of the reasons that I went out. I never did find the relief that I was looking for that first time. Gotcha. So in doing your fourth step this time, briefly, how did that work in doing that with a therapist? 
So I love talking about this at meetings with my therapist. I let them know that I was working with a sponsor and I let my sponsor know that I was working with my therapist. So I would do the work at home before a therapy session. I would schedule it. I'm going to work on this for an hour. I'm going to go to therapy and then I'm going to meet with my sponsor. And what that allowed for was transparency with my sponsor through the process without putting the responsibility on them to be a trauma therapist, which they are not. Mm -hmm. Right. That's fantastic. I love that you put it that way. I was not working with a therapist when I did my first, my big fourth step. Um, But I was dredging up these things that just made me feel really bad. I would work on my fourth step before a meeting because I knew that if it took me to that dark place, that I'm going to a meeting and help is there for me. And that worked for me. Absolutely. And with this sponsor, I was able to tell them lovingly that when I did get to the fifth step, I also wanted to go through that with my therapist. And I had a lot of folks in the rooms telling me that that wasn't how we do things. And so I lovingly asked them to show me where in the book it tells me how I do things. And you know what? The fifth step can be done with a whole bunch of different people, not just your sponsor. And sometimes I need that validation from those thumpers that I used to not enjoy and now love more than anything. They're just ignoring a part of the big book that says we do look for outside help and issues. That's in the book. Actually, I don't think it even mentions giving it to our sponsor. No. It isn't in the book in a lot of ways that people think that it is. It's more in that we have decided how we do in the rooms over time. I did the fourth step the same way. I had a therapist. You know, it's interesting the way you describe that because I've never thought of it as being odd or different. I mean, I thought it was a good idea to share it with my therapist. And it it really helped me with all of it to do it that way. So at the end of the fifth step, what does it say in the book? We are delighted. Now, I've always thought that was the strangest adjective to have at the end of the fifth step. But so were you delighted? I was not delighted, but I felt free. Yes. I had been carrying around this weight. And one of the things that my therapist really worked on me with was that I am allowed to set that down whenever I want to. And this program definitely gives me tools to do that, that I wouldn't have if somebody just told me that I can Saying that someone can set down these feelings that we drank over, that we drank at, that we've held on to, that's a very good idea. Okay, how do I do it? Give me the tools. And so some of those tools are in AA, but you have to know how to use them. And that's what I need a sponsor for. I don't know how to use these things unless somebody shows me what they did. Yes. A lot of it's vague. I remember asking the guys like, but how do you let go? I mean, what are you talking about? I just didn't understand that at all. I hear the words, I understand the words, but how do I do that? Well, and honestly, one of the things that I found in the program is that I get to learn how to do that over and over and over. If I'm lucky, as long as I stay here, I get to keep learning. But the biggest thing that I hear when people talk about letting go or when I feel that relief is that acceptance that I heard about early on and often. And for me, acceptance is like a strange puzzle piece that's got a specific hole and every so often it just slides right in and I'm able to sit here and just feel total acceptance around not controlling other people places or things around accepting myself accepting life on life's terms and the very next day I wake up and that puzzle piece just doesn't fit in the hole and I turn it and I rotate and I use all the tools that I already used yesterday 
And it just doesn't pop in there until it does. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, I haven't mastered it yet. Other than I know what I've done to make it work before. I think I'll try that first. Can you give an example, uh, say, of something where you're frustrated and the sober reaction is, I need to not fight this. I need to let go of it. How do you go about it? Can you give a practical example? Oh, absolutely. I've got day-to-day life on that. I am a single mother that is co-parenting with people that are not in this program, which means that they do not use the tools that I do. But what I find is that this is one area of my life where I simply struggle to give up control because being a parent is all about learning to control what you can and not fight every single battle because it's just not going to get you anywhere. And so I lean heavily on parents in this program because one of the practical examples is my child comes to my house with a different idea of what's expected of them. And there's a lot of things in life that I have acceptance around, but a seven-year-old sassing back to me is not one of them. (laughs) When I ask him to clean his room, when I ask for things that are collaborative, it's amazing to me how the tools of this program make me a better parent, not just because I'm sober, not just because I'm able to meet these things consciously and with love, but because accepting the things that I cannot change extends to everything, even when I don't think it should. I think that I should have control over other people when it's my child. Turns out he's still people just like you. Yeah. Um, Choose your battles wisely. I'm pretty sure it was my mother who first taught me that. And what I took that to mean was choose the ones you can win. And then in recovery, what I have learned is, no, what am I going to try to control? What is within my sphere of control? What is worth the serenity of trying to do it? It just has such a wholly different meaning. Yeah. Choose your battles wisely, Don. Yes, exactly. Because sometimes it feels very right. It's a matter of principle. I need to fight this thing. But if there's no way that I'm going to succeed then I'm going to make myself miserable fighting it. And would I rather be right or would I rather be happy? You know, is the question. You know, from a lot of married couples, I've definitely heard people tell me that their serenity is worth not winning every fight that they get into. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what being in relationships is about. There has to be compromise. And the best line I ever heard for marriage is, it works until your spouse finds out about it, but it's, you may be right. You may be right. <laughs> you mentioned relationships and marriage, but you know, you're in a relationship with a seven-year-old. How is your recovery showing up in getting to know your seven-year-old child? Well, one of the best things that I found early on was meetings with childcare. And the good thing about going to meetings with childcare is that there's other parents in those meetings. And those parents are able to share not only their experience, strength, and hope around their sobriety, but their experience around their parenting. And sometimes it looks very different from when we were out there to when we're sober. I get to be fully present with my child. I get to have compassion and understanding that he's going through the same emotions that I am. And he might not have the words that I do because he's not in spaces where people are giving the words for the feelings that pop up. And so part of what my recovery looks like is that 10th step is important. When I make a mistake, I come to my child and I apologize. I own what I've done because I would want that from him. I want to teach him that it's something that is going to benefit him in life. But I also get to use the principles in all kinds of ways when it comes to if I need to stop and meditate, we actually sit down crisscross applesauce and we meditate together. It helps us to get our big feelings out. 
he does not pray the way that I do. And that is okay. I'm giving him the option to find his own higher power. And what that looks like is sometimes we have to stop and listen for that quiet voice that tells us what to do next. And it is amazing what children are capable of understanding when you just lay things out for them clearly and you let them make their own decisions. I don't have to talk down to or simplify it for him. He gets what he gets out of it. And honestly, that's all that I get out of anything that anyone shows me. Wow. That's really working the program. You got me misty eyed with that one. The other place the program shows up for me with him. I heard early on first thought wrong. Second thought is the one that I am going to hold myself accountable to. Cause that's the thought where I make a choice about the action that I'm going to take. And what I've found in parenting is that sometimes that first thought is the thought that I can remember from the way that my parents handled me and they were doing the best that they could with what they had but Mm -hmm. it wasn't good enough. Sometimes they were also alcoholics. Mm -hmm. So with my son, the first thought, the first thing that pops into my head, isn't the thing that I necessarily do. And I get to forgive myself for that over and over because the second thought is the one where I choose how to be a parent today. And the program gave me that ability to take a pause, choose what my action is going to be. So it's not a life of reacting. It's a life of action. And that's been important to me to learn in parenting. I can hear the recovery in your voice and in your approach, Danny, as we're talking. How do you find the time to do AA and raise a child? Well, sometimes, uh, you know, you just have to give up the things in life that used to be things that I thought that I needed. So for my first year of recovery, it was a pretty tough year. I was in a DUI program. I was in an outpatient program for alcoholics and addicts. I was in meetings as often as humanly possible. I was working 40 to 50 hours a week to support my child and I, and I was trying to be the best mother that I could. And that year was hard. But what's amazing looking back is that I did all of it. Every single day that felt like it was too much, I did. And so today I've got a lot more time. I still have my service commitments. I still have my meetings. I still have work. And, you know, I think that we were all forced to slow down a little bit the last couple of years and really be at home with ourselves and our families. But what I'm finding today is that the things that used to distract me are the things that I can absolutely choose to set down during the hours that he is not in school before he falls asleep, because I have time to do everything else that I need to after eight o'clock at night. I can find meetings that start after his bedtime. I can choose to spend my time with friends or loved ones on the nights that he's over at his dad's house. And I think that for a lot of parents, there's a struggle between having the me time and the time where they are parenting. And I have the absolute gift of being here with my child when he's here by setting down electronics, by setting down my worries and just being in this moment and then this one. And I didn't have that before I got sober. Uh, The me time is now wherever it is. (laughs) Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to say? We talked a little bit about my relapse, but for anybody who has had a relapse, the time that they spent working on their sobriety counts. Mm -hmm. You might not count that as your time now, right? Your sobriety date is the time that I have today of continuous sobriety. But of the last 10 years, I have worked actively on my sobriety and myself for almost eight of them. And when people tell me that they had long-term sobriety or even short bouts They seem to discount all the work that they did if they have relapses in between because somehow relapse erases for them the time that they had. And I just like to make sure that people know any effort that they've put into themselves where they weren't drinking or using is time well spent and it matters. And I want people to know that relapse does not mean that you haven't done any of this. 
It just means that today I've only got the time that I have since my last drink. And I've also got all the time that I spent making sure that I was a better person amongst people. Yeah. Beautiful. I reset my sobriety date in 2012. My last drink was in 2003. You know, it hurt a lot when I was going through that. I didn't lose all that experience that I had. I didn't lose the self-discovery and it felt like I was starting over. And that was not entirely true. And I want to encourage people that are scared to come back that having a new date that you announce at a meeting does not change your worth. There isn't someone in a meeting with 18 years that feels more important to me than the person with 18 days. It's usually the people with less time that I look to for that experience so that I don't forget and lose my hope that I have. And I know that it's cheesy and everybody says it's just today, but the longer that I'm sober, the more that I realize it doesn't matter how many days I have behind me. If I don't stay sober today, I'm not doing it. And Mm -hmm. so it really is just today. And all the time behind me is all the experience that I have. But even that doesn't equate to knowledge. I have to be working on myself today to keep knowing more and doing better. Well, Danny, stick around for our next segment. We're going to have a little fun with social media. (laughs) And now it's time for Pound Sign Heard in a Meeting. No, Don, that's hashtag heard in a meeting where we, <laughs> where we scour the interwebs for your posts of cool things you've heard in a meeting. Post them on social media with hashtag heard in a meeting. Keeping in mind our tradition of anonymity, here's what caught our attention this week. Danny, would you please choose a number between 30 and 42? 42. I didn't identify with much, but I identified with enough. Hashtag heard in the meeting. I like the identify part of it. Uh, Identifying in instead of identifying out, which we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that sums up my first three years in this program was that I was looking for the differences. So what I immediately think of with that is that the shift for me was when I started noticing the similarities, no matter how small, and using that as a jumping off point to learn something. If you're looking for differences, you can find them, but that's not the point of being in a meeting with other alcoholics. Yeah, we can definitely find what we're looking for in the meeting. That's identifying myself in or out. Identified enough to stick around to keep hearing enough for it to become real to me. Don, give me a number between 30 and 41. 38. 38. Today, I will try not to stab anyone with the knife of my character defects, including myself. (laughs) The knife of my character defects. (laughs) Is that a rusty blade? (laughs) You know, the hardest character defect that I had to face was my tendency to manipulate And I know that we can take these defects of character and turn them into assets. So now I can be influential. Now I can be supportive and I can absolutely help people to achieve things by being there driving what it is that I see in them. But when I had it pointed out to me how manipulative I was being, what it looked like was, and to echo you, that feeling of not being enough and wanting you to think that I was worthy because I was struggling with feeling that myself but also the fear, the fear that I wouldn't be able to have my needs met and not being able to just ask you so that you could say yes or no, but instead trying to manipulate the situation so that you had to say yes. Hmm. The big thing that I had to work on there was being honest with myself 
because the first person that I manipulate before I'm willing to lie to you is me. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to sleep with myself at night. And so I had to learn how to look at my actions honestly and choose how to do something different. And that was a hard pill to swallow. So one of the posts that we have here is I use my manipulative powers for good these days. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that that just naturally happened here. That's obviously a summation of what you just said, because it's not that I'm trying to manipulate today. I'm not doing all these machinations to try to control. And giving up that control, allowing for my higher power to show me what it is that I need to do next. Sometimes that looks like supporting other people in ways where I get to use those skills, that skill of knowing how to talk to people, knowing how to read people, maybe having a good idea of what people need or what they're really thinking so that I can ask them. And working with sponsees requires a good manipulation of what it is that I see that they're going through. As long as I'm being honest about it, though, and following up with my own sponsor and the people around me, you know, some folks, they have a trusted circle that they talk to, and I like to mm-hmm. call mine my Jedi Council. And so Ooh. I fear that I manipulative. <laughs> I get to go to the Jedi Council and ask them, what am I actually doing here? Because you can see me more clearly than I can see myself. Oh, that's yes. beautiful. It is beautiful. <laughs> I like the Jedi Council. You know, Bill talks in the 12 and 12 about a character defects are, are instincts out of proportion. Instincts gone awry. Gone awry. They're good. I mean, used correctly. My character defects, when they are not out of balance, they're just characteristics. My people pleasing, which was ingrained from the early childhood and on, serves me really well in taking care of my clients. Yes. Not so much when I'm out just being me in the world. (laughs) Are you saying that alcoholics are a pendulum that swings to extremes? (laughs) Why, yes. And balance is that fabulous place right in the middle. (laughs) We swing by it going, hi. (laughs) It's too gray in there. Why would we want to live there? That's just... Danny, thanks for being here today. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was great to meet you guys. I'm at the very wit's end. What's an AA newcomer's favorite wine? Uh, You have to call my sponsor every day. (laughs) (laughs) it's really not that funny thanks for joining us the aa grapevine half hour variety hour is posted every monday and is produced by aa grapevine inc we don't speak for aa as a whole we share the experience strength and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.